When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, one of the defining features of Trump's politics, it's no secret, has been the way he's appealed to hatred and fear of refugees and immigrants. Now, refugee writers and refugee lives are featured in a new book. It's called The Displaced, and it's edited by Viet Nguyen. He's the author of three books, including the unforgettable novel The Sympathizer. It won the Pulitzer Prize. He's the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and he was selected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, along with Ta-Nehisi Coates, Sonia Sotomayor, and Barack Obama. He also teaches at USC, where he's Arnold Chair of English Complet in American Studies and Ethnicity. Last time we talked to him here, it was about the sympathizer. Viet Nguyen, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, John. And congratulations on the Academy appointment. Isn't that weird? <laughs> strange to be strange to have my name mentioned in the company of those other names that you. That you well, al- alphabetical order puts you right next to Obama. It, it's a great thing. Well, let's see if the seating chart works out the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you insist on being called a refugee and not an immigrant. Why is that? The immigrant idea in America is very strong. Right? We, we call ourselves a nation of immigrants, and it's a part of our mythology that immigrants come here and they achieve the American dream. And I think even at this moment in history where the xenophobic feelings in American society that have always been there are reaching another peak, even those people who don't like immigrants nevertheless believe in that immigrant idea. Like, of course, immigrants would want to come to the United States because we're awesome. But refugees (laughs) are different. Refugees are unwanted where they come from. They're unwanted where they go to. They're a different legal category. They're a different category of feeling in terms of how the refugees experience themselves. And they're a much more despised category even than immigrants for so many people in the United States. So it's very easy for someone like me to pass himself off as an immigrant, to pretend to be an immigrant, but I feel like I'm doing a disservice. I feel like I'm not speaking the truth, and I feel that it's necessary for people like me who have benefited from being a refugee uh, to acknowledge our existence as such and to advocate for the refugees today. Well, I looked up some of the statistics on refugees today uh, and about Trump's current policy. Last September, Trump slashed the cap on refugees admitted to the United States. <clears throat> Obama, under Obama, it had, the target was 110,000. Uh, Trump officially slashed that to 45,000, but this year it looks like he only 22,000 will be resettled, which is about a fifth of what Obama's target was. If we look at Syrian refugees admitted to the United States, uh, 2016, Obama around 15,000, 2017 around 3,000, and thus far in 2018, 11, a total of 11. You became a refugee in 1975. You were four years old 
What's the story there? How did that happen? Well, we, my parents were fleeing from the Vietnam War, and they were obviously from the southern side, so they were among the losing side. And so along with 130,000 other Vietnamese people who were afraid of communism, they decided to flee the country, and they were among the lucky ones who managed to get out because I think the CIA was estimating there was about a million South Vietnamese people who had some kind of affiliation with the United States who really wanted to leave and couldn't. So this 130,000 group of uh, population ended up in the United States in one of four refugee camps, and my parents and I ended up in Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania, and that's where my memories begin, uh, in a refugee camp, and being taken away from my parents, because in order to leave one of these camps, you had to have a sponsor. Well, one sponsor took my parents. One sponsor took my 10-year-old brother, and one sponsor took four-year-old me, which, when you're four years old, it's very traumatic to be separated from your parents. Uh, and I speak now as a father of a four-year-old son, and, and, and looking at him, I see myself, and, and I just imagine how painful it would, it would have, yes, that, that experience yes. would have been for me and for my parents. So that's where memory begins with this narrative, and that's why I feel, you know, for me, I've never forgotten being a refugee because of that trauma. You write in the introduction to The Displaced, I do not remember many things, and for all those things I do not remember, I am grateful, close quote. Why is that? If you do any reading into refugee experiences, what you discover is that people who are refugees almost uniformly have <laughs> suffered terribly in trying to escape the country they were fleeing from and in trying to get to the countries that they want to go to. And in the case of just this South Vietnamese population that we're talking about, uh, the refugee experience was horrendous. You know, many, many, many lives were lost. Many terrible things happened to the people who were trying to flee. And at four years old, I didn't remember any of that kind of stuff. My, my brother, who is 10, you know, has, remembers dead paratroopers hanging from the trees yeah. on the mountain route that we were uh, escaping our home city from where we were walking downhill about 180 kilometers trying to make it to a port town to get a boat to Saigon. And that mountain route from the research that I've done as an adult was clogged with tens of thousands of civilians and all their vehicles and property and tens of thousands of South Vietnamese soldiers fleeing as well. It was a nightmare. So no one who's been through that experience has ever forgotten it. And those are traumatic, terrible things to have witnessed. So that's why I'm thankful that I don't actually remember these things myself, and I have the luxury of reconstructing them from other people's memories. You say that refugees like you and your family in America today are both invisible and hyper-visible. Uh, please explain what you mean. Well, by that I mean we share a situation that is completely common for just about any minority or marginalized population in this country or in any other country. We're invisible in the sense that people, the rest of America, doesn't know about our existence and doesn't care to know about our existence. So when my book started to come out, for example, The Sympathizer, I've had many people come up to me and say, well, we were there uh, in 1975 or the 1970s when the Vietnamese refugees started coming to town, and we knew nothing about them, and we never cared to ask. We were invisible, but we become hyper-visible when we become a problem, when we become gangsters or when we become visible as welfare cheats and things like that. But there's no in-between. We're not allowed the luxury of just being normal, just being visible, like everybody else in, in majority American society. And so we fluctuate then between never being seen and only being seen as a problem. You have a wonderful 
sentence about being uh, a, a writer about refugees. I keep my tattered memories of being a refugee close to me. Why is that? I think it's easy for people who have undergone some kind of terrible loss or some kind of terrible experience to forget about these things, although it's not easy. It's, it's desirable for them to do so. So I've actually met quite a few refugees who don't acknowledge that they are refugees. They just call themselves immigrants because, again, it's easier to call yourself an immigrant. If you call yourself an immigrant here, uh, you fit people, – people will, will want to hear your heartwarming story about getting to this country and succeeding. Yes. If you say you're a refugee, that's the quickest way to kill a cocktail party conversation <laughs> because people can't relate to that. So that's why I keep those tattered memories close to me because, number one, it's important to, to do this work of reminding uh, other refugees and other Americans that we exist. But number two, it makes me empathetic. It makes me feel for these new refugees and what they're going through. And that's an important thing for me as a writer and a human being to do, because I know that there are some former refugees out there who are saying, you know what, we're the good refugees. We deserve to be here. All these new people from the Middle East or Syria, for example, they're the bad refugees. They're different. We've got to close the door on these people. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. Kind of the purpose of a book like The Displaced is to help us imagine the lives of refugees. But you say in your introduction that this imagining can lead us to deceive ourselves. What do you mean there? Well, I think that this is a part of the problem with literature. You know, literature's strength is built on, on empathy, um, both the empathy of authors and the empathy of readers. We want to get to know other characters, other people from, from different places. And this is a very powerful thing. But it's also deceptive because it's a luxury. I think we, we want to know about terrible situation X and, and sympathetic person Y, and we've read their story, and, and our, our hearts are warmed, and, and our, our emotions are moved. But what happens if we don't do anything? What happens if we just put down that book and pick up another book? What happens if we don't donate money, if we don't get involved in an aid organization? What happens if we don't call our elected officials? What happens if we don't march in the streets? What happens if we don't take action? And I think that's the danger of, of literature, that it can, as much as it awakens our feelings, it can also lull us into a sense of complacency that we've already done something simply by reading about someone's situation. And I should uh, add here that the publisher of The Displaced, Abrams, is donating 10% of the cover price to the International Rescue Committee, one of the one or two leading nonprofits in the world that's been providing humanitarian relief to refugees since World War II. I know you're a supporter of the IRC, and they're an important part of this book. No, absolutely. I think that there are important organizations like the IRC that are carrying out this work. They've been doing it for a long time. You know, there there are, uh, by UN estimates, uh, 22 and a half million uh, refugees in the world right now. Um, and that is out of a population of 66.5 million uh, displaced people, as the UN calls them. Uh, so th if you add all these people up together, they're a very large country. That would be a country that's larger than France. Yeah. So there's, there's pressing need for these types of organizations and, and the work that they do. One last thing I wanted to ask you about. You had a piece in the New York Times last Sunday, and the title was Don't Call Me a Genius. You, of course, are the winner of what is usually called, in fact, we just called it in introducing you, a MacArthur Genius Grant. Why don't you want people to use that word to describe you? 
Well, first of all, let me just say I didn't write that title. Okay, <laughs> it's a, it's a, the whole piece is actually about the, 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 the problems with genius. Not that I don't want to be called a genius, but you know, it's 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 about this idea that when we say genius nowadays in uh, our society, we're typically talking about some individual of remarkable talent or achievement. And it, in my case, you know, it's related to the label that's often put upon someone like me, a writer from a minority or marginalized community. Uh, I have been called a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Many writers like me have been called that. And a voice for the voiceless is just this kind of thing that we trot out whenever someone is uh, writing about an experience we don't know anything about. And that, that's meant to be a compliment, you know, that this person is exceptional. And that's why it's dangerous. My work is made possible by the, you know, all these social and political struggles by Asian Americans, by African Americans, by so, by so many other people that have created the space for someone like me not to be persecuted or discriminated against simply by the fact of my own existence. And I come out of an Asian American community, Vietnamese American community, whose struggles, again, have made it possible for me to do the work that I do. And I don't think of myself as a voice for them who are voiceless people because they're actually all really, really loud. <laughs> I think that my work is aligned both with literature but also with these social and political movements whose goal is, yes, to get more voices out there, but really to transform the conditions of our society so that we don't have voiceless people anymore. And that's a really long-term struggle that we're engaged in. The Long-Term Struggle. The book is The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. It's edited by Viet Nguyen. Viet, thanks for talking with us today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.